Lynn Hiles Ministries presents Dr. Lynn Hiles That You Might Have Life. And here's your host, Dr. Lynn Hiles. Thank you for joining us again this week on the program and welcome back. We've been doing a series of teachings that I'm titling The Roadmap to Reformation. We are coming from the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, Zechariah, and we have arrived at a section where we're talking about the gates of Nehemiah that were being rebuilt. The theme of this whole series has been Roadmap to Reformation. They are leaving Babylonian captivity, which we showed you in prior segments, speak of religious bondage, especially as it relates to an old covenant way of thinking. And they are headed back towards reformation or restoration. I believe that there is a massive shift that's taking place in the earth today that's moving us from an old covenant paradigm to a new covenant understanding. When Nehemiah came into the city, we've already read this in prior weeks, so I'm not going to go back and turn to it. He comes to, to survey the condition of the city in the night season. What's the city like in the dark, in the night season? He finds the city broken down, the gates burned with fire. He begins to find, as he goes, he, he, and, and the path of his journey is significant. He comes first of all to the dragon well, and then to the dung port, and then he turns a corner. And we've talked about that in the last three weeks especially. The dragon well has, the uh, legend has it, that a head of a dragon was cut off. There's the place where Jesus spoiled principalities and powers. I showed you last week that the name of the guy who built the uh, fountain gate, which we're going to talk about again today, uh, the name of the guy was Shalon, and it means to spoil principalities. His father's name also means the all-seeing one. And then he was the ruler of Mizpah, which means the watchtower. We're going to make that, we're going to connect to the watchtower today a little bit. So here we have the one who spoils principalities and powers, who's the son of the all-seeing one, who's the ruler of the tower. Now, when you turn the corner, when you come past the dragon well, and you understand Jesus spoiled principalities and powers, then you come to the dung port. And you have to leave the religious dung behind, and dung period in your life. Paul uses this word in Philippians when he says, I was born of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, as touching the law, I was blameless, but I counted it all as dung, that I might win Christ. In order to turn the corner to the gate of the fountain, you're going to have to leave behind some of your old religious mindsets and concepts because you're going to come to the one who spoiled principalities and powers, who's the son of the all-seeing one. We also found out in prior segments that I've taught that the pool of Siloam was just inside of this gate, and we talked about in John chapter 9, the man who was born blind. He was born blind from his birth. And Jesus comes to him, the scribes Pharisees were saying, Who sinned, this man or his parents? This man was a beggar. Jesus encounters him, 
and he takes the red clay and the spittle and puts it together and puts it on his eyes and sends him to this pool of Siloam. This pool of Siloam means sent. The sent one just sent him to wash in the fountain, inside the gate of the fountain, near the king's pool. And what I showed you is that he took the red clay of Adam and the spit of the divine and mixed them together and began to wash his eyes. And I think what he was doing is disconnecting him from who he was in Adam, who he saw himself as in Adam, to seeing who he was in Christ. And washing in this pool is going to change your identity. You know, there's a song out that's real popular right now that I think is powerful. When you say, I am weak, or when I say I'm weak, you say I'm strong. When you say, when I say I'm not enough, you say I am more than enough. In other words, the shift has to come in our thinking from an old covenant paradigm of who we are in Adam to who we are in Christ. Jesus heals this man on the Sabbath day, which is a powerful picture of what happens from the finished work, because I showed you again in prior segments that the Sabbath day is not a day of the week, it is a person. His name is Jesus Christ. And when we come into that perpetual Sabbath, Colossians 2 says, let no man judge you in meat or drink. Matter of fact, the verse above it says, having spoiled principalities and powers, he disarmed principalities and powers by taking away the handwriting of ordinance that was against us. He took the law out of the picture and he said, let no man judge you in respect to meat or drink or new moon or of a Sabbath day, which things are a shadow. The reality, however, is found in Christ. In other words, all of those Old Testament pictures were types and shadows of the reality or of the substance that was Christ, and now we've come to the substance. It's time to wash the dirt out of your eyes and stop seeing yourself in Adam and seeing that in the new creation the human and the divine has come together. Just like it did in the first Adam, God took the red clay of earth and then He put the breath of life, nostrils, He took the breath of God and put it in the man. The human and the divine became one and it brought about the first creation. In the new creation, God puts His Spirit in us, in the human and the divine, without denying our humanity for our spirituality, or our spirituality to embrace our humanity. It's not either or, it's both of them held in a careful tension, because it is both of those together that bring about new creation, that gives God expression in the earth through the human spirit-filled person of the new creation a brand new species. We're not going to be that we are right now. We need to move away from being the beggar that sets and, and asks God for stuff we've already got, need-based and man-centered. I believe we need to come to a revelation of the fullness of what Christ is. And I, I just shared with you a few brief notes. For uh, uh, As a believer, you are no longer broken. You are wholly remade according to 1 Thessalonians 5.23. You're not a sinner saved by grace, Romans 6 verse 5 and 7, you've moved out of the old country where sin is sovereign into your new grace-filled land. You are a new creature in Christ. You're not at odds with God. You're His very righteousness. The war is over. God has already defeated the enemies. He's at peace. 2 Corinthians 5.21, you're not a slave or a servant. You're a son and a daughter of the, in your father's house. Romans 8 verse 16. You're not chasing after God. He chased after you. See the prodigal son in Luke 19, verse 10. You're not dying to self. You died with Him on the cross. Galatians 2, verse 20 said, You died. Your life is hid 
with Christ in God. Romans 6, 6 said, how can we who are dead to sin live any longer in it? You are not in need of more of God. He gave you all of himself. John 1, 16, and of his fullness have all we received and grace for grace and we have received, you are complete in him. That's good news. If you could understand what you already have and access what you already have by renewing your mind, the church would turn the world upside down. This is the beginning, I believe, of a roadmap to reformation. You are not drawing closer to God. You are now one with Him. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 17. These are the blessings of the new covenant. You are not now a part of, I believe them, I receive them, renew your mind to them, and enjoy your new creation life in Christ. When Jesus restores this man, then he comes and the scribes and Pharisees, let me tell you something, religion is not excited about your revelation of Christ. They want to control you. They want to keep you bound to who you were in your old creation. They don't want to forget your past. They want to hold you to a lot of that. So when it comes down into the, they've drilled his parents. They've just about put them all out of the synagogue. They've asked this man, and then they're accusing him of being a sinner, and on and on the blame game goes. Then they're calling Jesus a sinner. And, you know, people have used that verse out of context where he said, we know that now that God here are not sinners. And, and they've used that to tell you that God don't hear a prayer of a sinner. Well, if he can hear, you know, a curse word, he can certainly hear the prayer of a sinner. Uh, because that's not, that's not a quote that's telling you God don't hear sinners. That's the Pharisees and scribes accusing Jesus of being a sinner. And we know now that God doesn't hear sinners. You know, I, I, I probably oughtn't to chase this rabbit, but I'm going to. I remember years ago sitting in a woman's house, and she said, Brother Hollis, she said, I just feel like the heavens are brass. She said, I just don't feel like God's hearing my prayers. He said, I feel like I pray, my prayers reach to the heavens, fall right back to the earth. And she said, I know you're a prophet, you're a man of God. She said, if God gives you anything for me today, please tell me. And so I said, well, I don't have anything from the Lord right now, but if the Lord gives me anything, I'll be sure to give it to you. She went back down into the kitchen. She was boiling water for spaghetti. And when she was boiling water for spaghetti for our, our supper that evening, some of the water splashed out and scalded her just a little bit on her hand. When she did, she let out a string of cuss words about that long. I mean, she cussed like a sailor. And then she realized, oh my goodness, the man of God is in my living room. So she comes walking in, all broken, and she said, oh, Brother Howell, she said, I just, I am so sorry. She said, I don't know where that came from. And I'm thinking to myself, well, you articulated it very well. That don't sound like the first time you've ever done it. And she said, I just repent. She said, I know, watch this, I know God heard every word of what I just said, and I'm so sorry. And I, all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit spoke to me. He said, tell her, here's her problem. Not that she cussed, but that she could believe that God heard every word she said when she cussed, but she couldn't believe God heard every word she said when she prayed. The issue is, what do you believe? Now, I'm not justifying cursing. I'm simply saying if we had as much faith and confidence in our prayers as we do of God keeping record of our bad things, it might shift us away from a sin consciousness and start to realize, I have had my eyes washed and I've come seeing. These people reviled this man because he got set free and because he got a revelation and his vision, his eyes were open. And they said to him in verse 29, they reviled him and said, Thou art his disciple, 
but we are Moses' disciple. Your new covenant, we're old covenant. That kind of it in a nutshell. It's who you are under. You cannot mix both covenants. Paul calls that a perversion of the gospel. But I believe a revelation of Jesus to you will produce a revelation of Jesus through you. And when you get your eyes washed and disconnected from your old identity of who you are in Adam and the ball and chain that keeps you bound to the law, and you start seeing, I'm not in Adam, I'm in Christ, you're going to begin to live by faith and not by sight. That being said, I want to get you something else that I believe is powerful here. Uh, let, let me read on down through here just a little bit. They, they said to him, Thou art Moses' disciple, and we are his, uh, are you're, you're his disciple, we're Moses's. We know that God know that God's spoken to Moses, but as for this fellow, we know not from whence he is. The man answered, said unto him, Why herein is why herein is a marvelous thing that you know not from whence he is, and yet he opened my eyes. Know we not that God heareth not sinners, but if any man be a worshiper of God and doeth his will, him he heareth. Since the world began, was it not heard that any man opened the eyes of one that was born blind? If this man were not of God, he could do nothing. They answered and said unto him, Thou wast altogether born in sin, dost thou teach us? And they cast him out. And Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And when he had found him, he said unto him, Dost thou believe on the Son of God? And he answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe? And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast both seen him, and it is he that talketh with thee. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I am come into this world, that they which see might not see, and they that which see might be made blind. And some of the Pharisees which were with him, heard these words, said unto him, Are we blind also? And Jesus said, If you were blind, we would have no sin. But now you say, We see, therefore your sin remains. Jesus is talking about a spiritual blindness. And he's saying to them, he's really using this picture to show them that he came to open the eyes of the ones that seem to be blind and the blind minds of the ones who seem to be open. And he's took, he con directly connects this to these Pharisees who are telling him clearly, you're his disciple and we're Moses' disciple. In other words, they saw a revelation of who he was and would not repent. Therefore, their sin remained. I want to show you one other thing because I believe as we're talking about the eyes of the blind and we're talking about vision. Uh, I, I really uh, felt like the Lord quickened this to me. Hebrews, this, uh, not Hebrews, Habakkuk, Habakkuk, however you want to say it, chapter 2, verse 1 through 4 says, I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower. Now, now before I move on, remember the name of this guy who built this gate means the one who spoiled principalities and powers. The name of his father meant the son of the all-seeing one. So the he he and then he was the ruler of Mizpah, I believe it was, which was the tower. So now we have the tower connected to this through Habakkuk chapter number 2 verse 1, I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower and will watch to see what he will say unto me and what I shall answer when I am reproved. 
And the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain upon tables, that he may run that readeth it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak and not lie. Though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come, and it will not tarry. Behold, his soul which is lifted up uh, up in is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. Now Habakkuk is talking about a man on a watchtower watching to see what God will say and what he will do when he is reproved. So he's correcting some vision. Are you are you following me? The man washing in the pool of Siloam is having his vision corrected. And Habakkuk says the vision is yet for an appointed time, and in the end it will speak. Now let me tell you that the end, in my opinion, is not the end of this age. It was the end of the old covenant age, when the just would live by faith. Now what we don't understand is that in Habakkuk, the vision is yet for an appointed time. And it is connected to the verse that says the just will live by faith. But when you go to Hebrews, the 10th chapter, Verse number 37 and 39, this is a quote from Habakkuk chapter number 2. He's quoting Habakkuk. He said, For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. Now what I want you to see is, in Habakkuk he says, Though the vision tarry, wait for it. In Habakkuk the vision is an it. In the book of Hebrews, Though he tarry, wait for it, and he will come. So the it becomes a he. So the vision is the revelation of Jesus Christ and the opening of the eyes of the blind to move us from darkness to light, from old covenant to new covenant, from who we are in Adam to who we are in Christ. And he goes on to say, For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry, Now the just will live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back to perdition, but of them who believe to the saving of the soul. So the it becomes a he. From the book of Habakkuk, the vision would tarry in the book of Habakkuk, but it would speak. Uh, it would in, in the end it would speak. It was for, in the end it would speak, and so and the end was the end of the old covenant age. When in Hebrews chapter ten, I just read it to you, the it becomes a he, and the he uh, it will bring you to a revelation that the just will live by faith. That's the whole concept of the new covenant: is the just will live by faith. There's another scripture, I believe, in Romans ten that talks about the just will live by faith. Again, quoting the book of Habakkuk. Right believing will produce right living. When you wash in the pool of Siloam and you gain your sight, when you truly know who you are in Christ, this will be your response. How can we who are dead to sin live any longer in it? Let me just read this to you from the Message Bible. In Romans 6. I'm going to read from the Message Bible. I think, I'm sorry, yeah, Romans 6, and and I'm going to read it to you from, from the Message. It says, So what do we do? 
keep on sinning so God can keep on forgiving? I should hope not. If we've left the country where sin is sovereign, how can we still live in our old house there? Or didn't you realize we packed up and left there for good? That's what happened in baptism. When we went under the water, we left the old country of sin behind, and when we came up out of the water, we entered into the new country of grace, a new life and a new land. You have entered grace land where Adam has left the building. There were pools all through this area that were called mikvahs, which were used for washings, but they were also used for baptisms. We're going to talk about when we come to the water gate a little bit more of that. I think that was where a bunch of people were baptized on the day of Pentecost was at the water gate. But we're going to talk about water a little bit. But he's talking here is when you see who you are in Adam or who you are in Christ, when, when your faith really hits that, you will get out of bed one morning and say, how can we who are dead to sin live any longer in it? He said, that's what happened. That's what baptism into the life of Jesus means. When we are lowered into the water, it's like the burial of Jesus. And when we're raised up out of the water, it's like the resurrection of Jesus. Each of us is raised into a light-filled world by our Father so that we can see where we're going in our new grace, sovereign country. Could it be any clearer? Our old way of life was nailed to the cross with Christ, a, di a, a decisive end to that sin-miserable life. No longer at sin's ever beck and call. What we believe is this, if we get included in Christ's sin-conquering death, we get included in Christ's sin-conquering death. We also get in, included in His life-saving resurrection. We know that when Jesus was raised from the dead, it was a signal of the end of death as the end. Never again will death have the last word. When Jesus died, He took sin down with Him. But alive, He brings God down to us. From now on, think of it this way. Sin speaks a dead language that means nothing to you. God speaks your mother tongue and you hang on every word. You're dead to sin. You are dead to sin and alive to God. That's what Jesus did. That means you must not give sin a vote in the way you conduct your lives. Don't give it the time of day. Don't even run little errands that are connected with that old way of life. Throw yourself wholeheartedly and full time. Remember, you've been raised from the dead into God's way of doing things. Sin can't tell you how to live. After all, you're not living under that old tyranny any longer. You're living in the freedom of God. See, and the reality of it is, see, I'm connecting that to the steps that were inside of the pool or inside of the fountain gate that led up to the king's palace. It's the secret place of the stairs that we talked about in other places. It is ascending through the death, the crucifixion, the burial, the quickened, raised, and seated of what Jesus did in us is that we are co-parts of that experience as we identify with Him. So since we're out from, here, here's what it goes on to see. So since we're out from under the old tyranny, does that mean we can live any old way we want? I want to make this clear because a lot of grace people think you can. So since we're out from under that old tyranny, does that mean we can live any old way we want? Since we're free in the freedom of God, can we do anything that comes to mind? Hardly. You know well enough from your own experience that there are some acts of so-called freedom that destroy freedom. Offer yourselves to sin, for instance, and it's your last free act. See, you've got to turn the corner here. You're either going back to the dung gate of the dragon well, or you're going to turn the corner and you're going to go to the fountain gate. 
It's which direction do you want to go? Offer yourself to sin, for instance, it's your last free act. But offer yourself to the ways of God, and the freedom never quits. All your lives you've let sin tell you what to do, but thank God you've started listening to a new master, one whose command sets you free to live openly in His freedom. I'm using this freedom language because it's easy to picture. You can readily recall, can't you, how at one time the more you did just what you felt like doing, not caring about others, not caring about God, the worse your life became and the less freedom you had. You thought you were free, but you were in bondage to your freedom. How much, it goes, I think that's powerful. It, it, became, it said, uh, not caring about others, not caring about God, the worse your life became and the less freedom you had. How much different is it now as you live in God's freedom? Your lives healed and expansive in holiness. As long as you did what you felt like doing, ignoring God, you didn't have to bother with right thinking or right living or right anything for that matter. But do you call that a free life? What did you get out of it? Nothing you're proud of now. Where did it get you? A dead end. But now that you've found you don't have to listen to sin tell you what to do and have discovered the delight of listening to God telling you, what a surprise, a whole, healed, put-together life right now with more and more life on its way. Work hard for sin your whole life, and your pension is death. But God's gift is real life, eternal life delivered by Jesus, our Master. So the gospel is not just to get rid of who, of your old sin nature so you can go to heaven, but it's so that you can come into a new life right now, a life that goes on and on and on. I think this is so much a vital part of the gospel that's missing is that Jesus came not just to get you to heaven or to get out of hell free card. Jesus came to give you life and that more abundantly. God is more interested in healing your brokenness than He is in judging for your sin. Can you turn the corner, head to the fountain gate, or do you want to turn the corner and go back to what you came from? I don't know about you, but there's no life behind me. And the more of the gospel I have truly learned and embraced, the more quality of life it has produced in me and the people that I preach to. My wife and I sat on the porch the other night, and I said, you know, if this thing was over tomorrow, we did something that mattered. When you see the quality of the lives of the people that are touched by the gospel of grace, happy are thy servants. It's like the Queen of Sheba who comes and says, the half was not told. Happy are your servants. They're not just serving because they have to, but they're happy. I trust that the gospel will make you happy. We're out of time. I trust you've enjoyed this segment on the fountain gate. Next, next week, we're going to probably turn to the next one, I think, which is the water gate. I believe you'll be blessed. If you'd like to sow into this ministry, we do need your help. It takes finances to stay on the air. Go to my website, and there's a link where you can give via PayPal or credit card. And if you'd like, you can sow there to become a monthly partner. You can just do an automatic debit, or you can give a one-time gift. You can also call the number that's on the screen. Someone will take your call. If you don't get an answer, leave a message. We will return your call. We just have a limited staff that will return your call. Or you can give via uh, check or money order by writing to the number on the screen. God bless you. I am excited to announce the release of my latest book titled The Great I Am. 
In this book, we will explore the seven times in the Gospel of John that Jesus says, I am. When he uses that phrase, it is always in contrast to something from the Old Covenant. For instance, they thought Moses and the law was the door into the sheepfold, but Jesus said to them, I am the door. They thought that Israel was the true vine, but Jesus said to them, I am the vine, you are the branches. As you read the pages of this book, you will discover that Jesus removed the covenant of death and replaced it with the covenant of life. Get your copy of the book, The Great I Am, today.